Sharon and Hannah and Jayla. Thank you guys for your love and your support and just uh, allowing me to do what God has called me to do. And then to the Solid Word Bible Church family, good morning to you all, those who are here in person, those who are watching online, friends and family. Uh, we uh, are so grateful and thankful to have you here worshiping with us and are excited to continue in this series on the healthy church. And um, um, today we're going to be talking about living unified in him uh, as a part of the healthy church series. And as a part of uh, that series, we'll be moving through Ephesians, the second chapter. So, and you can start getting your devices together, your, your Bible and turning there. Um, Pastor, you prayed for us, so, so we, will, we will go ahead and get right into this. The lesson aim for this morning is that we would understand that Christ's work on the cross doesn't stop at the redemption of the individual, uh, but it extends into and it manifests itself in the unifying of the diverse community of believers called the church. Let me say that one more time. We would understand that Christ's work on the cross doesn't stop at the redemption of the individual, but it extends into and it manifests itself in the unifying of the diverse community of believers called the church. We're going to be looking at the entire book of, uh, or not the entire book, the entire chapter of Ephesians 2, but kind of as my anchor verses, I just would want to turn your attention to verses 13 through 16, and I'll read them uh, very quickly here. <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Amen. Amen. Look, uh, throughout history, especially in this nation and, and, and in our country, there seems to always be some type of call for unity. But it seems, at least to my ears, to my observation, to my limited time on this earth, that the cry for unity is amplified right now, given the year 2020 that we had and then even how 2021 is starting off. We hear cries for unity, for being united, for being one. And look, this call for unity, it is a noble thing. It is a right thing. But what we also see happening is that it is a hard thing to achieve. And sadly, though, instead of the church being a light and an example of the unity the world is looking for, Sometimes the church has found itself displaying just as many divisions as those on the outside of the fellowship. And in some of our worst cases, unfortunately, the church has even helped to facilitate some of those divisions. 
But here in Scripture, I think we see very clearly, and if you're sober in how you read Scripture, that there is a mantle. There is a charge that the church must uphold. And that is that we must be unified in Christ, showing the world the power of Christ, not just to redeem, but also to reconcile. So let's go ahead and get into this. Looking at the very beginning of Ephesians 2, at this point in his letter, Paul does something interesting. Where right after in chapter 1, right, he talks about all that these believers have in Christ and all that these believers are in Christ. He then here at the beginning of chapter 2 reminds them of who they were before Christ. He points out that they were dead in their sins, walking according to the patterns and the rhythm of the world. And he pushes it even further to say that they weren't just walking according to the ways of the world, but that they were walking according to the ways of the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, y'all, just in case you didn't know. And Paul explains that Satan is the one behind it all. Satan is the one influencing everything. He's the one powering everything and driving and encouraging the ways of the world. Let me stop right there because I might be messing with somebody's theology this morning because when I said that Satan is the one influencing and powering and driving and encouraging the ways of the world, that might have tripped some of us up. Because when we look at the world, sure, there's a lot of craziness out there. Sure, there's a lot of things happening that we wish weren't happening. But some of us conclude that in general, things really aren't that bad. But the problem is that for some of us, we have adopted a view of Satan that is straight out of Hollywood and not out of the Holy Word. Some of us think that if Satan is involved, then there's got to be some horned winged creatures somewhere about. There's got to be some things crawling up and down the walls and across the ceilings. There's got to be some black fluid coming out of your faucet, some voices telling you to get out and and don't come back and doors opening and closing and, and all kinds, skies black and all sorts of things happening. And all of those things that we see in the movies, but scripture tells us that what Satan wants is to be worshiped over and above God. And anytime God is not worshiped, anytime God's word isn't seen as right and true, anytime people don't submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, Satan is pleased. Now, if you are still having difficulty with accepting that Satan is the one influencing, empowering, and driving, and encouraging the ways of the world, ask yourself this question. When was the last time you heard the world declare that God be worshiped? When was the last time you heard the world say that God's word was right and true and should be obeyed? And when was the last time you heard the world say that people should submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Hmm. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program, verse 3. I like what Paul does here because he knows that Christians, believers, you and I, we can come down with a bad case of holy amnesia. (laughs) 
For some reason, right, we, 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 forget, we, we, we forget that we weren't born saved. Or we think that the sins that we were committing weren't as bad as what we see others doing. But Paul reminds them and he reminds us first, he says that, look, that we all were living in the lusts of our flesh, which means we were wallowing in it. Do you, you, do you know what wallow is? Anybody grew up on a farm? You ever seen pigs wallow in the mud? They don't just kind of step through it. They get down in it. And when they get down in it and it starts feeling good to them, then they kind of lay on their side in it. And they figure, well, if it felt that good on my right side, then maybe it'll feel that good on my left side. And they lay on that side. And then they, next thing you know, they're on their back and they're just going back and forth, wallowing in it. Paul says we didn't accidentally slip up, trip up, and fall into sin, but we dove right in. And when we got there, we invited others to come on in because the water was fine. Secondly, he says that we all were indulging the desires of our flesh and our minds, which simply means that if it seemed good to us or felt good to us, we did it or tried to figure out a way to do it. And finally, that by nature, we were all children of wrath. In other words, while we were running around indulging our sinful desires, we were making God angry with our disobedience. Now, I know y'all are thinking, man, Elder Wright, this is landing heavy. Well, this is what the scripture says. This is what Paul is writing. And we're walking through what he is explaining to the believers in Ephesus and what he's uh, explaining to us. And this brings me to, and I haven't had these in a, in a while, to my very first takeaway. And that is, is that if we want to live unified in him, a healthy church of believers understands that no matter where we came from, no matter how much money no matter how many opportunities, no matter what kinds of hardships, what kind of mountaintop or valley experiences you had or did not have, no matter your race, no matter your ethnicity or your gender, no matter your education level, your skills and competencies, <clears throat> we all have the same origin story. And that is that before Christ, we were walking in lockstep with Satan running around trying to satisfy the sinful desires of our flesh and our minds, making God angry because of our disobedience. Hmm. Moving right along in verse 4, Paul then utters that <clears throat> what might be the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, he says, that just means that God's got a whole lot of not giving us what we deserve for being disobedient inside of him. But God, Paul says, having great love towards us while we were still in the midst of indulging ourselves in our sinful desires, but God through Christ made a way for those who were dead in their sins to be, as the scripture says, alive with Christ. Hmm, but God. Can I just stop there and ask, does anybody have a but God testimony? 
Anybody watching online at home, do you have a but God testimony? Let me, let me help you out and run down some things. When, when the odds seem stacked against you, but God. When the walls were closing in on you, but God. When you couldn't see a way out of a situation you had get, gotten yourself into, but God. I'm going to keep pushing at this thing. When the doctor says it didn't look good, but God. When the job said, we don't need your services anymore, but God. When your child said, just stay out of my life, but God. When your spouse said, I don't love you anymore, but God. Hmm. But it doesn't stop there because God not only made us alive together with Christ, Paul says, but he also raised us up with him, seated us with him. (laughs) in the heavenly places. And this is a tie back to chapter one in all that we have in Christ. Think about this. Amazing. Paul says that before Christ, we were wallowing in indulging our flesh and our sinful desires. Now, I know some of us think that what we were doing wasn't all that sinful. It wasn't that bad. I wasn't robbing and stealing and murdering and doing those kind of things. Don't think about sin like that. Sin is simply doing what you want to do and not what God said to do. So I don't care if it's reading a book you ain't got no business reading or stealing that book from the library. It's sin. So before we get to measure, well, it wasn't that bad and his was that and I wasn't doing that. So it's all good. Uh, Paul says that we all were doing what we wanted to do. Huh? But he says, God being great in mercy and in love, in the midst of us doing what we wanted to do, decides to send Christ to save us. And then when he saves us, he doesn't just say, now there, the slate is wiped clean. But it says that he raised us up with Christ, seats us in the heavenly places with Christ. Think about that. We now have a place at the table with the one who we didn't want to dis- we didn't want to obey and he says come into the family. And to keep us from getting the big head Paul lets us know in verses 8 and 9 that all of what God has done for us through Christ was done by grace. Not because of our works we didn't earn salvation. Because what we had actually earned was death. (laughs) When we were ignoring God, when we were indulging our sinful desires, in other words, doing what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, when we wanted to do it, despite what God's word said, he still decided to save us. And instead of giving us death, he extends his grace towards us by giving us something that we had not earned and did not deserve. And now, get this, just like the the Gentiles, we who were far off from God have now been brought close to him and have access through Jesus Christ. This brings me to my second takeaway, and that is that if we want to live unified in him, a healthy church of believers understands that what we have in Christ 
and who we are in Christ is not because we were so smart. It's not because we came from the right family. It's not because we came from the right country, belonged to the right political party, graduated from the right schools. It's not even because our parents were Christians, but it had absolutely nothing at all to do with you or with me. And had everything to do with God's grace and his love. Meaning, this is where it's important, get this, meaning that uh, no one that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ is any more deserving or any less deserving of God's grace. Hmm. Now, with all of that as the backdrop, Paul then moves into <clears throat> and highlights what has now happened in the body of believers. He talks about everyone's common background before Christ. He talks about now what they have received because of Christ and how that was not because of works, but it was because of God's grace. So you've got a common background. You've got common grace. No one can boast. No one is better. No one got here by their own. No one's background saw them through. No one has. Look, there are no classes in the church. There's no first-class Christian, second-class Christian. Paul is saying, you all were in the mud when God looked upon you. And it wasn't anything. It's not that you had a little less mud than they did and they had a little less than them. You were covered in it. And God's grace said... So then how dare those who were content to be in the mud when they're brought out of the mud by other means than their own to then begin to strut around as though they did something themselves. And Paul says that that <laughs> is a barrier to unification. And he goes on, he says, now what has happened in the body of believers as a result of Christ's work on the cross, namely that these two groups who could not be unified, Jews and Gentiles, these two groups whose practices were offensive to the other, these two groups who had been at each other's throats all through ancient history, these two groups now have been made into one. So the work of Christ on the cross not only has the power uh, to reconcile man to God, but Paul says it also has the power to now reconcile man to man. Paul explains in verses 14 and 15 that what was dividing right, the Jews from the Gentiles was the law. Now think about this. Jews had the law and they believed that no one was righteous, right? There was no righteousness, no way to be right, no, no way to have a relationship with God, with the one true God, apart from the law. While the Gentiles not only didn't have that law, but they also worshipped a myriad of other gods utilizing all kinds of rituals and practices. <clears throat> and, and, and so we see, right, that it's hard for those two groups to be reconciled. 
One group says there's only one God and, th and this is his law and you need to live by this law in order to have access to him. The other group says we don't have that law. We've got a bunch of different gods and we've got all kinds of rituals and practices trying to still have relationship with the gods. There's no way for that to be reconciled. There's no way for that to come together. But Christ comes along and he is able to reconcile both groups because to the Jews, he says, it's not the law that brings righteousness, Jews, but it is me. And to the Gentiles, he says, the Jews don't have a lock on the one true God and you can come to know him through me. <laughs> you got to see what he's doing here. And so he makes himself the new common denominator. Let me stay out. No, okay, yeah. <laughs> the reason why we can't be unified is because I got my set of expectations and standards. You've got your set of expectations and standards. And don't get me wrong, every now and then, those expectations and standards will align. And when they do, it's a hallelujah shouting good time because then we can walk hand in hand. But eventually, we will have to step off of that bullet point and step onto another bullet point. And then the division comes back in. <laughs> Christ comes along and says, let me tell you what to do, Johaz. You get rid of your list. Charles, you get rid of your list and take my yoke upon you, mm, right? And then he says, now let me become your new standard and your new expectations. And now, instead of it being what Joe has thinks and what Charles thinks, it's what thus saith the Lord. Huh. Not to make light of it, but for us to really appreciate how big a deal this is, the, the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one, it, it, it would be as if, and I, I'm not making light of it, but get you wrap your mind around it. It would be like the Ku Klux Klan and the Black Panthers becoming one organization with one centralized focus, one theme, one guiding principle that united them and made them subjugate all the other issues that had once divided them underneath this new guiding principle. And hopefully, when we think about that, <laughs> the weight of what Paul is saying hits home. But if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, when I was working on this, the question for me was still, how is it, though, that Christ does something like this? How is it that he's able to take two things that seem irreconcilable and then reconcile them together? And to be fair, look, I don't, you might have got your pencils ready. I, I don't have a detailed step-by-step -step answer for how the, the God of glory reconciles two groups that seem irreconcilable. But what, 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 I, what I know, right, is, is suffice it to say that, that Christ is able to do Listen to me now, what bylaws and principles can't do. 
Christ is able to do what platforms and mission statements are powerless to do. Christ is able to do what slogans and banners and mantras aren't able to do and what effort and good intentions are hopelessly incapable of doing. And that is Christ is able to change hearts and to change minds. Hmm. He is able to change how we think. He is able to change what we believe. He is able to change how we behave. Look, I don't care what organization you, you, you send your money to and, and, and you really believe in. They can't change your heart. They can't change your mind. They can't pick you up, as the song said, turn you around and set your feet on solid ground. No, no clever argument can change your heart. No, no, no recitation and presentation of facts and information can change your heart. Only the one <laughs> who fashioned your heart can actually turn it, change it cause you to desire things that you never had any interest. Read the Bible, what? And now I wake up early to seek him. Pray over dinner, sure. Now I'm seeking him. Stuff that I know didn't come from me because I was enjoying myself in the mud. But Christ is able to come. The Bible says that he will give us the desires of our heart. That's been twisted. People think that means that the desires that I bring to Christ, he will grant. Christ is not a genie in a bottle. What it means is, is that when I come to Christ, Christ will look at my heart and he will give me desires, the right desires, so that those things that I was chasing after, they just... Paul says that all of that is as dung when I think about the love of Christ. Hmm. This brings me to my third takeaway. If we want to live unified in him, a healthy church of believers understands <laughs> that Christ is the common denominator that unites us all. Listen to me. Listen to me. It isn't affiliations. It isn't political parties. It's not skin color. It's not nationality. It's not economic status. All of those things take a backseat to Christ. And further, a healthy church of believers looks to Christ to give them the proper perspective on all of those things I just listed out. This means what? I can't claim that Christ is the head of my life, but then operate how I want to operate in every area of my life. I can't say glory hallelujah to the lamb on Sunday morning and then on Monday through Saturday, get back in the mud. But I look to Christ with serious issues and say in my Christian life, Inform me, Christ, how to engage with these things. 
not how my flesh wants to engage, but how you want me to engage in these areas. The problem is that many of us want Christ's salvation, but we don't want Christ's sanctification. We have to allow, we have to want, we have to desire for Christ to change our minds and our hearts to make us like him. Look, I don't want this to be a daunting task in front of you. You think you need to go home and and love reading the Bible today. No, what I'm telling you is that you need to desire to want to be more like Christ. That's the desire. The desire isn't, Lord, help me pray every day. No, the desire is, Christ, I want to be more like you. The charge for us is not all of a sudden to go out and stop doing everything that we're doing that's not pleasing in his sight. The charge for us is to leave here saying, I know I'm doing things not pleasing in your sight. Make me more like you. Lastly, Paul closes out chapter two with an explanation where he says, in effect, look, guys, (laughs) you aren't reconciled to one another. You aren't unified in Christ just for the sake of being unified. But you are unified for a purpose. And that is that they, believers, and by extension, all of us are being built up into a building. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. And there are a couple of notable things about this building that we are being built up in. And we look at verse 20. The first thing you'll see is, is that its foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Hmm. What Paul is saying, right, is that this building, it stands on the sure teachings and the writings of the apostles and the prophets. It it isn't a fly-by-night kind of a thing. It's not a fad or a phase. It isn't the flavor of the month. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. Actually, how do we know it's not here today and gone tomorrow? Because we're here today talking about and reading and studying scriptures and teachings that are centuries old. There's got to be some truth in there. There's got to be some reality and some experiential facts and, 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 and compulsion, right, that keeps this thing moving. We know there's been movements since the beginning of time of people who have risen and fallen and things that have come and things that have gone. But here we stand, still searching the words of the apostles and the prophets and the scriptures. And what Paul is saying is, is that this building that is being built up, it has its roots in the scriptures and in the teachings and in the testimonies of those who walked and talked with Christ. He also says that this building, hear this, this is neat, this is good stuff, that Christ is the cornerstone of the building. Now, a cornerstone, also called a foundation stone or a setting stone, is, is the first stone set in the construction of a building or a structure. So the cornerstone, it, it determines the positioning, the alignment of the entire structure. 
So this building that you and I are being built into, it isn't a building that we get to decide which way it goes. We don't decide whether it leans to the left, if it leans to the right, if it makes a turn here or makes a turn there. You are not the cornerstone. I am not the cornerstone. Pastor isn't the cornerstone. The elders aren't the cornerstone. The deacons aren't the cornerstone. The choir is not the cornerstone. Seniors aren't the cornerstone. The youth aren't the cornerstone. Marrieds aren't the cornerstones. Singles aren't the cornerstones. Bylaws ain't the cornerstone. Ties and offering ain't the cornerstone. Programs and ministries, they aren't the cornerstone. Traditions and rituals aren't the cornerstone. Nothing and no one but Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the one born, crucified and resurrected and now sitting at the right hand of the father with all power and authority in his hand. He and he alone is the chief cornerstone. Lastly, Paul says that this building isn't just a wall, right? It's not just just this big, tall wall, (laughs) but it's becoming something and it is growing into a holy temple. Now, this is neat. This is neat. Stay with me here. Now, temple is a place where people can come and have an encounter with God. Think about this. In the Bible, the temple was a special place where literally God's domain and man's domain or heaven and earth overlapped. The first place we see temple is in the Garden of Eden, where you've got man in the garden, God's presence there, nothing separating them. God's domain, man's domain, overlapping. So putting this all together, Paul is saying, look, Christ has unified us in him, not just so that we can be content in being unified, but he has unified us so that when we come together ah, with him as our cornerstone, as our common denominator, it will be like heaven on earth. And anyone who gets to experience the fellowship of a healthy, united church will walk away feeling and realizing that something special just happened because they have literally encountered the very presence of God being in and among his people. Not, ooh, didn't they have a nice coffee bar? Not, ooh, didn't the band really do their thing today? Ooh, did you see the bookstore? No. A church unified in him is being built into a holy temple, literally where God's domain and man's domain overlap, so that those who come into the temple get a glimpse of what it's going to be like on the other side, and then, not, ooh, I want to be there because they've got coffee and they've got a bookstore and they've got a band, but, ooh, I want to be a part of that. A fellowship that indwells the very presence of God. Takeaway number four, and this is my last takeaway, is that if we want to live unified in him, a healthy church of believers understands that Christ 
not any other agenda, not any philosophy, not any person, must be the cornerstone. He must be the standard by which the fellowship is taught and built upon. And doing so will usher in the very presence of God in and among the fellowship. However, listen to me, the moment a body of believers builds upon anything other than Christ, they cease to be a holy temple and instead become a monument unto themselves. Look at how big our church is. Look at all the programs we have. Look at all the stuff we're doing. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If God is blessing your church to do those things, glory, hallelujah. But I'm telling you, if the number of programs you have is your cornerstone, then you are just building up a monument and a shrine unto yourself. And people will come and be impressed with your organization, but they will not feel the presence of God in the fellowship. And let's be honest, that's what people are searching for. That's what they want. People want to be connected. People want to feel loved. People want to know that people have concern for them, care about them, inquire about them genuinely, openly, transparently. Some of our churches, we might as well be competing with the YMCA. So busy doing, and we're not doing anything. So in conclusion, salvation through Christ is the means by which those who were far off brought near to God. Two sides that were previously incompatible, Jews and Gentiles, are now made into one body, reconciled with one another and reconciled with God through Christ. And likewise, in the church, there should be no dividing walls. Whatever we formally divided ourselves over should fade away in comparison to our new shared reality that is in Christ. He becomes our new starting point of reference. He is our cornerstone and we will know and a church will know that he is the cornerstone when we see ourselves being fitted together was what Paul says, being fitted together piece by piece, person by person into a holy temple, a place where people can come and have an encounter with the living God. Amen. 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 Church family, those listening online, those in person, this is the work of Christ on the cross. Paul tells us that he is reconciling all things to himself. He is becoming the common denominator for everything. And that can be true for you today. 
some of you hearing, sitting here and listening, you may not know whether or not you are in the fellowship, whether or not your name is in the Lamb's book of life, whether or not you have been saved by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Look, we would love to spend some time with you to walk you through that thing, to help you understand so that you can either be sure or you can make yourself sure <laughs> that your soul is taken care of. It is a free gift. All we have to do is say, yes, I want it. For those that may be watching online, there'll be some information at the end of the program and you can send us an email. If you have questions, you can contact the church. Someone will reach back out. We will talk with you, pray with you, walk you through this thing. If you are here in, this, in the building right now, find me, find a pastor, find one of the elders, and we will take some time to talk with you to make sure that you know that you know that you know that you are in the fellowship. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Huh. So grateful for Christ's work on the cross. God, it is so much more than just the little bit of individual something that happened to me in my experience. But what we see, God, in Scripture is that you've got a plan that through Christ you would reconcile not only man to you, but man to man, and then would hold up your church as an example. We will see this later in Ephesians, to the powers, <laughs> to the authorities, that you are God and that you are able to do exceeding and abundantly more than anyone asks or thinks. God, I pray that this word would not leave us alone. I pray that it would chase us from here all the way until next Sunday. That when we close our eyes, we would hear it. That when we wake up, we would hear it. That as we're going through our days, whether it's school, whether it's work, that we would hear it. And that you would be challenging each one of us, not to generate a list of other people who should have heard this, but to ask ourselves, am I desiring to be more like you? I've got salvation. Do I desire sanctification? God, build us into the holy temple that you always intended for us to be. Let our fellowship be a reflection of what it is like to be in your presence. And let that, not building size, not attendance, not income balance sheets, not programs, not amenities, but let that be what draws people to you. All these things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am a... Amen. <laughs>